All right, church. Well, good morning. My name is Doug, one of your pastors. It's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. If you're new, I um, want to especially welcome you. So glad that you have joined us. This really is a wonderful time. It's the perfect time for you to, to visit Parkview. Uh, because as a church, we are in a, uh, starting a vision series. Uh, many of you may have been here last week when we launched with Vision Sunday. And uh, wasn't that, if you were here last week, wasn't that just a ton of fun? That was an absolute blast. I think maybe, that's okay. Yeah, we can clap in church. Okay. Um, just a blast to be together with folks. Um, three campuses coming together as one church. Uh, a ton of fun. Just unending cotton candy was certainly a highlight for me. Um, hopefully you guys had a, a fantastic time. Just want to thank you, uh, staff, uh, volunteers, deacons, elders, for all the work that went into making that just really a special Sunday. Um, well, luckily for us this morning, the fun doesn't stop there. Okay? Um, really, last Sunday was the beginning of not just this series, but really a, sort of a flag in the ground moment for us as a church as we have set um, the vision and the mission that we are headed towards um, over the course of the next couple of years that are really going to give shape and define who we are as a people. If you were not here last week, let me just remind you that, that uh, the vision that we believe God has called us to over the course of the next couple of years as a church is that we would glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the, the vision. This is, this is the future that we see that is not presently a reality, but that is all of what we are doing is moving towards this end, glorifying Jesus by making disciples of Jesus. That's what we want to see happen in this church, throughout our community, to the ends of the earth, okay? And, and what's unique about Parkview is we just zoom in specifically to who we are as a people. We begin to consider what this mission, how does that vision become a reality? And this is what our mission statement is, that we would, Parkview would exist to glorify God through the whole church, forming whole disciples of Jesus for the good of all people. So as we consider what's unique to us as a people, how do we make what must always be true of Parkview Church? That's it. That we're a whole church forming whole disciples of Jesus for the good of all people. And so that's really, that's, again, hopefully as you see that, as you hear that, maybe if it's the first time, this a reminder is not an attempt to be cute and clever. In fact, if you're reading that, you may think that's exactly not what that statement is, cute or clever, all right? Our attempt with this vision and mission statement is that we would be faithful to God's word and his plan for his church, okay? And that everything that we do might help make that a reality, okay? And so this Maybe if, you, if you're in the business world or if you're familiar, if you've been around church long enough and you hear new vision, new mission statements, oftentimes the temptation can be to craft these statements, let them just live on the website or possibly in a binder on a shelf and then never come back to them. Well, leadership here and as a church, we are committed to making sure that does not happen. But rather everything that we do as a people would be informed by this vision, that this vision would shine a light on every area of our church and would give us direction for the years to come. And that it would really change who we are as a people. And so in order to help ensure that that happens, this series really, uh, this vision series, you could think of it in sort of two categories. One is conviction and the other is action. Our, our hope is over the course of the next several weeks is to clarify our convictions, what it is that we believe to be true. As we open up the Bible, as we read God's word, Let's speak clearly about what God's word says we are to be as his people. And let's everybody come around these convictions and let it inform the way that we think, the way that we live. 
And so that's why there's also a call to action. Not just are we clarifying our convictions, but we're also using this series as sort of a call to action. You will see practical steps every single week for how you can participate in this vision. Individually in your life, but also corporately as a church. Okay? And so this week, the focus for us, the first conviction that we're going to clarify is this. Conviction number one. Why make disciples. As you look at these statements, the vision statement, the mission statement of our church, you will see an emphasis on making disciples. It should be obvious, right? In fact, as we open up the Bible, it is obvious that this is what we're called to do as God's people, to make disciples. Let's be clear this morning why. Because there's a lot of things. Let's not, mis- let's not be mistaken. Let's not fool ourselves. There are a lot of things that we could give our time, our energy, our effort towards. Why make disciples? Why? That's what we'll be exploring together this morning. And so to help us to that end, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. The book of Titus. We'll be looking specifically this morning at just a few verses in chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. If you don't have your, your Bible with you, that's fine. There'll be words on the screen you can look up there. But we always just encourage you to bring God's word with you to church uh, on Sunday mornings. What you can expect if you're new here every morning is that there, every Sunday morning there'll be a message where God's word is open and is spoken to God's people and so bring, bring God's word with you, okay? And just leave it open. We'll be looking at a few different places this morning. And in fact, um, I'm not actually gonna get into Titus until a little later in the message. Um, so that'll be a little unusual for me as we preach this morning. But I'm gonna read it for us so it kind of sets the stage and we begin with God's word, okay? So this is Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. This is the word of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would you pray with me? Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning as it comes to us. And Lord, I just pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church who are, who are formed, who are shaped um, through your spirit and by your word. And I pray that that would happen this morning. We thank you for this word, which we know is eternal and we believe to be true. And we just ask simply, Lord, would you write it on our hearts? Make us people of this book and show us right now, Lord, what you would have for us from your word. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, growing up, one of my favorite sports to play was basketball. It was uh, probably around junior high, just fell in love with the sport and uh, had a few interesting coaches along my basketball career who implored sort of interesting uh, training techniques. 
different coaches, different techniques. A couple of them were, um, in fact, in high school, if you were to walk into our gym, you might see individuals um, running around the gym in these things. I don't know if they still make them, but they were called strength shoes. Do you remember strength shoes, Kyle? Yeah, strength shoes were these really weird-looking shoes that had this massive platform on the front of the toe, and so guys would be running around the gym, just bouncing all over the place, and the idea was that you would strengthen your calf muscles so you could jump higher and run faster. So if you were to just peer into a high school gym, you would oddly, obviously see in the gym individuals running around with these odd-looking shoes. It was really weird, okay, looking back on it. I don't know if they still use it or not, or too many Achilles heels went out or whatever, but um, another thing that you might see is you might see individuals learning how to shoot the basketball without a basketball, okay? So you'd see guys in the gym running around with strength shoes on, individuals doing form shooting, but no basketball in their hands, sometimes for hours, no basketball, which was a little, a little odd, okay? Um, unusual techniques. One particular coach loved just verbal abuse, just thought that was the ticket to success. Just if I can verbally abuse these young men in their most formative times in their life, then this, will be, this is a recipe for success, right? A, unusual technique. Um, one individual uh, throughout, you know, history who is incredibly famous for his ability to utilize these unusual training techniques is an individual by the name of Mr. Miyagi. Perhaps you're familiar with Mr. Miyagi. If you've seen Karate Kid, you guys are familiar possibly with the scene where a good chunk of the, the first movie there where Mr. Miyagi utilizes these unusual training techs or techniques to, to develop what becomes eventually the Karate Kid, right? Daniel LaRusso. And if you're familiar, Dan, you know, Mr. Miyagi asks him to, he shows up to train. They enter into this agreement. I will train you. You will become the Karate Kid. And he starts by learning how to sand his his patio, or in, in walks, wax and wash his car, even, you know, painting his fence, painting his house. In fact, at one point, uh, Daniel LaRusso becomes so frustrated, shows up at the house, there's no Mr. Miyagi, just a sign on the door and a bunch of paint that says, now paint the entire house, right? Only this time, side to side, don't forget to breathe, maybe you're familiar with the movie. An unusual technique, well, LaRusso becomes so frustrated in this training process. Mr. Miyagi eventually comes home. The house is totally painted. Maybe you remember the scene, and Mr. Miyagi walks in with his fishing pole, and Daniel LaRusso just loses it, just blows up on him. What is the deal? Basically, are you just using me for cheap labor around your house? Is that what this is? And in his frustration, Mr. Miyagi begins to throw punches and kicks right? If you remember the scene, Daniel Russo uses all the techniques he learned during the, the training process and begins to defend himself with these techniques. Wax on, wax off, paint the fence. Maybe you remember, right? This is really a turning point, not just in the movie, but in Daniel LaRusso, because at that moment, at that moment, Daniel LaRusso learns the why beneath the training. He begins to understand why Mr. Miyagi had him washing the cars and painting the fence. And it gave meaning to the training that would, that would eventually lead to Daniel LaRusso becoming this karate champion, right? He understood the why. In a similar way, as Christians, you cannot undervalue the, the necessity for us as we step into the reality of who God has called us to be as his people in this disciple-making process to understand the need for why. Our call, the, the why that lies behind 
our call to make disciples. The, the emphasis in our vision, our mission as a church to make disciples. Why do we do it? Understanding why is absolutely critical for us. If we want any, if we have any desire to be successful at what God has called us to, we must, we must align ourselves with why God has called us to do this. Why are we to do it? So this morning, I'm gonna give you four reasons why making disciples is at the very center of what we do as a people. The emphasis will be in the last one, okay? That's where we'll look at Titus. Four reasons. The first reason is this, obedience to Jesus. Why are we as God's church to make disciples? We saw this last week, right? Obedience to Jesus. You could answer this question simply like this, because Jesus told us to, right? If you look throughout the Bible, why should we make disciples? Because Jesus told us to make disciples. And that would be a perfectly acceptable, a, a wonderful answer to that question, right? Jesus, we know, was not simply a good guy, some historical figure of high moral standing, but the reality was that Jesus was God himself, right? And, and his command to us comes from the very authority of God, and he commands us. Jesus tells us, all the authority has been from heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Right? He's an authoritative figure. Uh, in our house, if you were to, I like to think that our kids at home are respectful and obedient. I mean, not always, right? But for the most part. Um, but if you were to walk into our house, an adult were to just walk into our house, unknown to them, just a stranger off the streets, and start commanding them to do all sorts of things, odds are it probably wouldn't go so well. It, it probably wouldn't. But if myself or my wife start to give directions or commands in our house, there would hopefully be a different response. Why? Because they, they know who we are. and We have authority in the home to tell them what to do. The same is true for Jesus. Jesus is more than just a great guy. He has all the authority in heaven and earth. And so when Jesus tells us to do something, we ought to do it. So this command to go and make disciples is... The, the, the idea of making disciples is simply... A, the reason we do it is because it's obedience to Jesus. And he has the right to tell us what to do, okay? Secondly, why do we make disciples? Not just because we ought to obey Jesus' commands, but also reason and motivation is rooted in love, okay? Our motivation for making disciples fundamentally begins in the love of God. Love for God is the appropriate response as we consider how God has loved us in Christ, in Mark 12, a lawyer asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus' response is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What God wants most from you this morning is your heart. Did you know that? What he wants most from you is your heart. He wants your love all your ambitions, motives, hopes, desires, thinking, reasoning, strength, energy, all of this informed and purified by his word. God wants your heart. But it's not just love for God, it's also love for neighbor, right? The lawyer asked Jesus one commandment, but Jesus gives him two. He says, the second is like this, Jesus says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. To neglect, Jesus basically is saying, the second commandment is to miss the first. 
The love of God begins a chain reaction that wells up in our hearts and transforms our lives and then spreads to those around us. We're told that we love because he first loved us. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And what we see as we read through the Bible, and hopefully you guys saw this in our Ten Commandments series this summer, is, is the, the relationship between these two things, love and obedience. Our obedience ultimately flows from our love. It is the response to his love for us and the expression of our love for him. That's what obedience is. Obedience to God is, is the response of his love for us and our expression of our love for him. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So another appropriate way to answer this question, why do we make disciples, is because of the love of God. It compels us to do it. Thirdly, why do we make disciples? Simply because Jesus made disciples. Jesus demonstrated a life of disciple making. One of the things that I love Hopefully you do too. So much about Jesus. What makes him so wonderful is that everything he taught us to do, he demonstrated it. He himself practiced. As he called us to live lives of holiness and gentleness, Jesus shows us precisely what that looks like. And Jesus' call to us to live lives of kindness and compassion. Jesus first demonstrates that. This is what kindness looks like. This is what compassion looks like. As Jesus confronts the lies of his day with truth, and tells us to do that, he, he demonstrates it for us. This is precisely what that looks like, to stand on the word of God and to combat the lies of the day with the truth of God's word. He shows us a life of what that looks like. Jesus was a man of grace and truth. He calls us to be people just like that. And as we consider what it looks like to live that out, we look at Jesus. And the same is true about making disciples. He calls us to make disciples, and guess what Jesus did? You bet, Jesus made disciples. When the Son of God came to earth to usher in the kingdom of God, his strategy did not include a run for office or a sort of a rallying of the troops or a military campaign. It wasn't a political campaign. It wasn't a mil military campaign. It was a campaign that involved around disciple making. He invited 12 men to walk with him, to share life with him. And as they walked with Jesus... Jesus spoke God's word to them. Making disciples was Jesus' ministry strategy. Shared his life with these 12 individuals, speaking God's word to them patiently over time. This was his strategy. And we might do well to point out that it worked, right? Some 2,000 years later, halfway across the world, here we are, you and me, followers of Jesus, talking about Jesus, learning from Jesus. His strategy worked. It worked. But in his kindness towards us, Jesus gives us so much more. More than a command and more than a model, Jesus pulls back the curtain and reveals his plan throughout history and shows us why making disciples is so crucial and why this call ought to be taken by us, his people, with a sense of urgency for us individually and corporately as a church. There's more. There's a fourth reason. It's the one I just want to zero in on a little bit, and it's this. You can 
be motivated to make disciples by considering obedience to Jesus, by considering the love of Jesus, by considering Jesus' model. But right now, let's consider Jesus' plan, okay? The fourth way that should motivate us to make disciples, the fourth way we can answer this question, why make disciples, is this. Because God's plan throughout eternity is to glorify his son by redeeming a people for his own possession. I'll say it one more time. Why make disciples? Because God's plan throughout eternity is to glorify his son by redeeming a people for his own possession. Look at Titus chapter 2, and we see this at play here. I'll read it one more time. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's plan throughout eternity is revealed to us throughout the Bible, right? So what's so wonderful about the Bible is God says, this is my plan throughout all of eternity. In the Old Testament, we're introduced to the problem, but also find a promise of a solution, a, a shared problem that we have as humanity. But also we discover that there is a promise of a solution to this problem. The prophets and the people of God longed to fully realize this promise, but only ever really knew it from a distance. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ arrives onto the scene. All the waiting, all the anticipation has come to a climax with the arrival of Jesus Christ. God's age-long purpose for the world has now arrived for all to see. As you look at Titus chapter 2, you see that there's, there's language of past, present, and future. And what's, what's so helpful about Paul's letters, and specifically here in Titus, is that he provides, just going to dive into the middle and look at the present, he provides present guidance for the people of God. He speaks to them and says, this is how you should live. Here's guidance for you. And, and you notice he, he does this here in the section of Titus. Guidance in the present day for the people of God. Paul is writing to a co-worker of his, Titus, who is a co-laborer in the gospel. He is a pastor at the church of Crete. And one of the, the particular challenges that the church was faced was that of false teaching has crept into this church. In fact, this is one of Paul's primary concerns as he writes these words. He is concerned with the effect that this false teaching will have on the church at Crete. Specifically, how this false teaching would allow for a life of ungodliness. So, Paul confronts the false teaching by painting a picture of a healthy church. A life of godliness. If we were to read the previous section, we see that Paul exhorts everyone in the church to a particular way of living in the present age. Guidance for the church, guidance for households, guidance for the society. In fact, here in the middle of our passage, we see guidance on how we are to live our lives in the present age. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright, godly lives in the present age. Verse 14 goes on to say, a people we are to be who are zealous for good works. 
Paul gives them clear instruction on what their life ought to look like right here and right now in the present age. This is, it's so important for our purposes today that notice, to notice this about Paul's teaching that the basis of the instruction is, of his instruction is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we see it here in, in verse 14 where Paul pauses for a reflection on the gospel story. He, he teaches us that salvation is what God has done for us in the past, is doing in us in the present, and will do for us in the future. Paul's exhortation on how God's people are to live right now is ultimately rooted in God's unfolding plan for all people for all time. He goes on to describe that that plan revolves around two appearances, epiphanies of Jesus. And the first he describes as, the first appearing of Jesus, he describes as a past grace. For the grace of God has appeared. It's in the past. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first appearance of Jesus is described as the grace of of God, which brings about salvation for all people. This is referring to the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to this earth some 2,000 years ago for a rescue mission, a rescue mission that would take God's people and move them out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the God-man, Jesus himself, who was perfectly obedient to the Father, exchanges his righteousness for our wickedness. It's the most amazing story that could ever be told. This, he says, is grace. This is the grace of God. That a broken, undeserving people who are fumbling around in the darkness would be transformed into citizens of heaven offered forgiveness. This is a solution to our deepest need, our biggest problem. See, here's the deal. To understand the grace that Jesus is, we have to understand our need. Jesus himself says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. And it's this us is a people from every part of the world. Doesn't mean that everybody now is instantly saved, but it does mean that everybody now is offered. Salvation is now offered to everyone without distinction, every ethnicity, every age, every class. No one is excluded from this invitation. Christopher Wright, as he talks about the mission of God, says this, mission arises from the heart of God himself and is communicated from his heart to ours. Mission is a global outreach of the global people of a global God. And we see that right here in Titus chapter 2. Friends, if you're here today and you've not received this grace. My question to you is simply this. What are you waiting for? The truth is, we all need it. One of the worst things that we could do is show up on a Sunday morning and act like we got it all together. 
While many of us are probably practiced and, and used to that, it's one of the worst things we can do. As we walk through these doors, we need a welcome from the loving Savior himself, Jesus. If you're here today and you've not received that, the Bible's clear, repent, turn to him, fall into his arms, and he will give you life that no one can take away. And it's his effort, not yours, that accomplishes it. So we see that there's this past grace, but we also see in the, in, the, in the verse that there is a future glory. There's another motivation which gives us direction and guidance on how we are to live in the present. Not only a past grace, but also a future glory. The second appearance that we see in the chapter is in reference to the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope. So the, the way our life is described right here and right now is that we are a people who are waiting for a, another appearance. Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Two words to just, phrases to focus on is, the, is that of the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ and also a people for his own possession. While the first appearance of Jesus was marked by grace, the second appearance is one that is marked by glory. Notice that the future includes a Christ who comes in glory. The second coming of Jesus will not be that of a baby in a manger who dies on a cross. Rather, it will be that of a king who comes in glory. Indeed, the king of glory, Jesus himself. And it will be a decisive moment in history which will change everything. So Paul not only grounds our present lives in the finished work of Jesus... The grace of Christ, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, but he also ties it to Christ's second coming. So our co-laboring, our behavior right here, right now, is not only directed out of gratitude from the grace of God, it is just as much informed by the anticipation of the return of the King. So the life of the believer, you could say, is bookended by these two appearances. And this is so critical because what this verse is showing us is ultimately what God is doing throughout eternity. His plan is to lift up his son, Jesus, and to redeem a people, to bring them from darkness to light, to create an entire kingdom who are going to one day that we saw last week in Revelation 7, worship King Jesus, people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. This is God's plan for eternity. And so as we consider this call to make disciples, essentially what it is, is joining God in what he is already doing throughout time. And one of the wonderful things about this is that we have assurance, we have confidence that what God says, he does. As we stare into the future, as we step into this task, what we can say is, listen, we trust God. And as we take one step of faithful obedience after another, we know that God is going to supply us with what we need to accomplish the task that he's called us to because he's going to make it happen. This is his plan. And if you're, you know, maybe, maybe you're in school right now and there's decisions to be made, what direction are you going to go in life? And there's lots of uncertainties. 
my goodness, what comfort and confidence we can have as a people as we join God with what he has called us to because he's going to supply us of what we need and he's going to accomplish this goal in us and through us. So what I want to ask you this morning, we've, we've talked a lot about why make disciples. Hopefully, hopefully, you've got a few things written down. There's many good reasons why we ought to give ourselves to this, this plan that God has for eternity. But I want to pause quickly, and I want to ask you another question, and it's this. Why not make disciples? Just think about that. Think about your own life. Lots of answers probably for this question as well. Why not? Maybe it's your phase of life. There's a lot going on right now, right? You know, got kids at home, got a growing career, got a lot of stuff I'm doing. Or maybe college students, you know, right now is a preparation phase. Eventually one day I'll get there. Um, Students, high school students, junior high students. I'm not old enough, maybe. Or maybe if you're retired here this morning, your answer to the question is, well, why not make disciples? Because I'm too old. There's a lot of excuses that we could come up with as to why we don't make disciples. For some of us, it's because we don't sense urgency in this call. There's always going to be people. There's, there's no shortage of needs. I can sort of plug in when I'm ready. No sense of urgency. For some of us, the reason we're not making disciples is because we ourselves are not a disciple. We're not following Jesus. There's a lot of reasons why we would not participate in this work. Some of us walk in here or, or connected to church and we're convinced that we have nothing to offer. Some of us, on the other hand, are convinced that we've arrived and we have nothing to learn. What's interesting, because for all of these excuses, none of them are justified in the Bible. What is clear as you open up God's word is that there is a sense of urgency in the world around us. And what we have unfortunately done is made this world just so comfortable that we can oftentimes forget that, no, that the Bible talks about, what Pastor Wade just said, is that this present age is an age of darkness. And that there are people, neighbors, family members, friends, people who are in our lives who don't know Jesus and will spend eternity apart from Jesus. And God in his grace has placed you in their life. And you have something to offer. In fact, you have the greatest thing to offer. The thing that that person precisely needs. What I want to do this morning is hopefully you understand that this is not something, oftentimes I think in Christianity, and next week we're going to spend, our, our focus is going to be what specifically is a disciple. As the weeks go on, we'll provide more practical instruction on how to make disciples, who makes disciples. But this morning, there's sort of two calls to action I want to 
I want to extend to us. The first is this. It's clear that this is God's plan. And in order for God's plan to happen, God's the one who accomplishes it. So as his people who participate in his plan, we are people who are, who are needy of him, who are constantly asking of him, okay? And so we are a people, and one of the things that we've learned this past year is really a strong desire for Parkview Church to be a praying church. We are a people who are committed to prayer because if this has any chance, this vision and mission has any chance of, of really not just transforming our church but also the, the world around us, then we have to be people who are constantly on our faces, on our knees, crying out to God to be at work in our midst. And so I want to ask you to commit to praying specifically that we would be a church that makes disciples. And we can do that individually. You can also do that corporately. We have several times as a church. Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Um, is, is one of the more popular ones that you can show up on Zoom. 7 a.m., the link is on the website, and you can come together for 30 minutes, maybe before you go to school or work, and you can just pray with other believers that this would happen here at Parkview, that this would be the type of church that we are. You can do it also. There's times on Thursday. There's times on Sunday. Right after service, there's going to be leaders up here who would love to pray for you, okay? So let's be a praying people. Secondly, the other sort of call, I'm going to give you space now to do this, is let's be a people who are honest and who give ourselves to reflection, okay? And I want you to examine your life with this call to make disciples. Consider why you ought to make a disciple, why you ought to be a disciple who makes disciples, and maybe consider why you aren't doing it and take that to the Lord. Give that to God, Okay? This would also be a fantastic time to consider who God has placed in your life, who maybe needs to hear the gospel, who maybe needs to grow in grace, that God has brought into your life that you can come alongside. Do some reflection. Over the course of the next couple of minutes, what I want us to be is just an honest people, just between you and God. We're not a people who have it all figured out. We're people who need help. And so we're gonna give you space right here, right now, to just quietly bow your heads um, Will's going to come back up and team is going to lead us. But I want you to just consider what does disciple making look like in your life? Okay, let's just take a minute in silence to do that.